Cribs is a TV show that takes viewers on a tour of somebody's crib. And for folks not as cool as I am, crib means house. Your crib is your house, man. There's actually several different versions of cribs. There's an MTV Cribs for hipsters, and a CMT Cribs for country music fans, and a Teen Cribs for teenagers. If you want to see Mariah Carey's New York penthouse, or if you want to see Carmelo Anthony's country estate, tune into Cribs. And if you want to see God's crib, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. For the Apostle John takes us on a tour of the king's crib, man. Jesus. Jesus is the king. And John is given a tour of his throne room, his throne room in heaven. The curtain separating time from eternity slowly peels back. A door opens from the physical world into the spiritual dimension. This is going to be an otherworldly experience. Check out the first two verses. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things which will take place after this. John gets summoned to heaven. And in verse 2, his wild ride begins, immediately I was in the Spirit. What's that? Was it a beam me up Scotty kind of moment? Or maybe a James Earl Jones vanishing into cornstalks? He was in the Spirit. Did he materialize, get spiritually transported and get rematerialized in heaven? Who knows? But when John opens his eyes... Behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. John doesn't go into the extraterrestrial mechanics of how it happened. He was too amazed by what he saw. Here is the ultimate episode of Cribs, heaven. But I want to begin this morning with an idea that's even more remarkable. You were made for heaven. You and I were made for heaven. Yes, weak, frail, flawed, insignificant, sinful, dirty little stinker you were made for heaven. You were made for the halls of heaven. Why do you think these kinds of shows, shows such as Cribs or its forerunner, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, you remember that one? Why this fascination with these extravagant, otherworldly cribs? Next time you gawk at a mansion on a hill, is it just whetting your appetite for an eternal celestial home? Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us God has put eternity in our hearts. God has created you and I for heaven. And He's put a longing in our hearts for His heavenly crib. Here's a great question for you. Do you ever get homesick? Do you? Do you ever get homesick? Years ago, I was overseas for three weeks. And toward the end of my trip, I really wanted to get home. I promised God if he would get me back in the good old U.S. of A., I'd never complain about a pothole again. Now I know why soldiers, when they get off the airplane, they kiss the ground. 
I mean, you can get extremely homesick. My youngest son, Mac, he's a college student who plays baseball, and his extracurricular activities keep him at school most weekends, and Mac can get really, really homesick. He might not admit it to you, but he can get really homesick. He finally got home two weekends ago, and he made a funny comment to his mom. Mac came out of the bathroom, and he, and he said to Kathy, he said, Wow, I've forgotten what real toilet paper feels like. <laughs> oh, the college days, man. Apparently, he and his college roomies have found some ways to cut costs. <laughs> the blessing of home can be taken for granted until you've been gone a while. It's such a sweet reunion to make it back to where you really always wanted to be. I believe that each of us was born homesick for heaven. It's been said, we are born looking for something we've never really seen and searching for a place we've never really been. I mean, even when life is as good as it gets, we're always wondering if there's something else. You know, it always puzzles me whenever I meet a person who's moved from Hawaii to Georgia. I mean, really? And I can think of several examples. They all said they were tired of Hawaii. Okay, always 70 degrees, no humidity, warm water, ocean breeze, sunrise. Are you kidding me? You're tired of paradise? But apparently you can get bored with paradise. Could it be we were never intended to feel at home anywhere on this earth? Wherever we live, we're still going to feel homesick. I believe God has planted within every human heart a homing device, sort of a spiritual transponder to get us back to heaven. We see this in migratory, uh, the migratory instincts of animals. We see this in the animal kingdom. In fact, the Pacific salmon swims many miles against the tides and the currents to return to the riverbed where they were first hatched. They come back to spawn the new generation. Every year, tourists flock to the mission at San Juan Capistrano to witness the return of the swallows. Once I was at a church in San Juan Capistrano, and I learned that the swallows don't actually return to the mission. They land in the Kmart parking lot next door. <laughs> but for the poets and the tourists, the mission's a little more romantic. Several years ago, I heard about a family cat named Clem. One day, Clem decided to leave home. He just jumped off the chair, he walked out, and he never came back. It was eight years later, a cat appeared clawing at the front door. When the family opened up the door, the cat walked right into the house like he owned the place and sat right in Clem's chair. After checking some old photos, to the family's astonishment, it was Clem. The prodigal cat had found its way home after eight long years. I believe that God puts a migratory instinct in every human heart. We were made for heaven, and we're never satisfied until we get home. Augustine prayed, Lord, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. I'll go one step further. I believe the very best of times on earth are merely foreshadowings of the thrills we'll experience the moment we get home to heaven. A baby's birth, your wedding day, a child's graduation, an unexpected inheritance, 
a gold medal hung around your neck. Take all of the achievements and accolades this world can dole out. Roll them all together and it's a little taste of heaven. C.S. Lewis put it this way. All the things that ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of heaven. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but to arouse, to suggest the real thing. Trust me, you and I were made for heaven. And yet, tragically, many people today are headed to hell. People often ask me, Pastor Sandy, if God is a loving God, how can he send a person to hell? Hey, God doesn't send anybody to hell. God made you for heaven, not hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus warns us, He will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was made for the devil and his demons. Every human in hell is there today because they chose to be there. People choose hell by rejecting Jesus. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God made you for heaven, not hell. Jesus came and washed away your sin. He's guaranteed your emission if you receive him. Once three buddies, they were in a car crash. They all three died and they went to heaven. Well, during the orientation, these three men were asked the same question. When your body is in the casket and your family and your friends are mourning over you, what do you want them to say about you? Well, the first man replied. He says, well, I want to hear them say that I was one of the great doctors of his day and, and a good family man. Well, the second fellow, he answered, he said, well, I want to hear them say that I was a wonderful husband and I was a devoted school teacher who made a difference in the lives of our youth. Well, the last guy, he responded, I want to hear someone say, look, he's moving. (laughs) Hey, hey, I don't mind hanging out on earth until God is finished with me. But once he's done, man, I'm ready to go. I was made for heaven. And I'm longing to go there. I won't be fully happy until I've reached home. Hey, once I make heaven, the last trip I want to take is back to earth. I'm counting on a one-way ticket. Heaven is a crib. It's out of this world. John's episode of Cribs begins in verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Now here's a few questions that we need to ask. First, John is about to be shown things which must take place after this. So what then is the this? Well, for the last two chapters in Revelation, we've been discussing the church, the seven letters to the seven churches. Apparently, what John sees from here on takes place after the church age. And since we are the church, the events described in the rest of Revelation are yet future. Chapters 6 through 19 list a series of judgments known as Great Tribulation. Which leads to another question. If all this happens after the church age, what then happens to the church? 
Well, John is a member of the church, and look at what happens to him. A door opens in heaven. There's a sound of a trumpet, and John is invited to come up. This sounds like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Jesus descends in the clouds, and with the voice of an angel and the blast of a trumpet, the church is caught up into, into the clouds to meet Jesus in the clouds and to be escorted into heaven. I believe that Revelation 4 verse 1 speaks of the rapture. Note in Revelation 2 and 3, the term church is used 19 times. But now, it's not mentioned once in chapters 6 to 19. The New Testament teaches that before judgment comes down, the church will go up. Jesus will snatch us away in the rapture. The church is in heaven when this great tribulation rocks this wicked world. And John is included in the church. It's going to be from heaven's press box that John will report on the future. But first, he describes his surroundings there in heaven. Here in chapters 4 and 5. He takes us on a tour of the king's crib. John starts in verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. All this happened immediately. Perhaps John experienced his own personal rapture. You know, so often we think of the rapture as a slow ascent. Our feet feel light and then we'll lift off and then we'll be floating through the clouds. But that's not how the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 tells us that the rapture occurs in a moment, in the very twinkling of an eye. That's immediate. That's pretty fast. A blink takes one-fiftieth of a second, they say. I imagine a twinkle's even faster. John was taken to heaven immediately. And when he opened his eyes, he tells us what he saw. Behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. Imagine what John could have written about. Portals into the inner workings of the universe are vistas of unseen heavenly bodies or bizarre angelic creatures, or maybe detailed blueprints of the mansions we'll inhabit, streets of gold and saints of old and mysteries untold. But that's not the feature that grabs his attention. John's eyes are fixated on a centerpiece. You see, everything in heaven revolves around a throne and its occupant. As vast and beautiful and magnificent as heaven must be, it's dominated by a single throne and its ruler. Listen to John's description. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. Jasper sparkles like a diamond. Sardius is ruby red. Vivid colors are now bursting from the throne of God. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. A rainbow provides us the whole spectrum of color. Here it's framed in emerald green. You know, on earth we're treated to half rainbows, but in heaven there's a circular rainbow that surrounds God's throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, miniature thrones. And on these thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And notice on top, they had crowns of gold on their heads. These 24 elders are interesting. John was not the only person in the Bible who ever got a glimpse of heaven. No, Ezekiel, Isaiah also saw God's crib. 
They received a similar vision of heaven. But here's what none of the Old Testament visionaries saw. These 24 elders. Oh, they saw the throne. They saw God. They saw the living creatures. But none of them saw these elders. And I'll tell you why. Ephesians 3 mentions that the church was a mystery. It was hidden from the Old Testament prophets. This is why these Old Testament visions of heaven, this is why the elders are absent in these visions. For I believe these elders represent the church. This is why they're clothed in white robes, the righteousness of Christ. You remember in Matthew 19, Jesus promised his disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones. He promises all faithful believers that one of our rewards will be to rule with him. I believe that these 24 elders represent the church reigning and ruling with Jesus. And you know, I hope God rotates his elders in heaven like we do here at Calvary Chapel. Maybe after 100 billion years, it'll be my turn. Again, they wear crowns of gold on their heads. This Greek word for crown, Stephanos, is not the kingly crown. It's the victor's crown. It's the gold-plated wreath that was placed on the head of the Olympic champion. These crowns are rewards that Jesus passes out to faithful servants. And the New Testament mentions five specific crowns that you and I can obtain. 1 Corinthians 9 talks about the imperishable crown. This goes to the person who stays in good spiritual shape. 1 Thessalonians 2 mentions a crown of rejoicing. It's awarded to the witness who wins souls for Jesus. James 1 speaks of the crown of life, which goes to the person who overcomes temptation for Jesus' sake. 1 Peter 5 identifies the crown of glory. It's awarded to Christian leaders who faithfully serve the body of Christ. And then finally, 2 Timothy 4, the crown of righteousness, is allocated to those who love the Lord's appearance, who just can't wait till He comes back. These 24 elders, they all wear these golden crowns. And God wants you and I to one day wear a crown. God wants us to serve Him. And He provides us incentive. We too can win these very same crowns. And it's vital that we do so. A little later we'll see why. Verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Oh my. Notice God's throne is not a peaceful pastoral retreat. It's a charged atmosphere. Color radiates. Energy pulsates. It's as if this throne is plugged into an electrical outlet that's sending it high voltage current. Lightning cracks and thunder rolls and voices of all sorts shout from God's throne. God's throne in heaven is like Sinai on steroids. In the Old Testament, God's manifestation shook the mountain. Here, the glory of God shakes the very foundations of heaven. We're told seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We talked about this earlier. This is the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. This huge sea sits motionless before the throne. Imagine the acoustics as the lightning and the thunder and the voices reverberate off of the reflective water. Wow, it must have sounded intense. This was a sensory experience unrivaled by anything that John had experienced on earth. You know, even today with all of our pyrotechnics, nothing can produce this kind of scene. Here's a color and light show complete with surround sound. 
God's throne is like an overheated reactor. It boils and it glows and it rumbles and it sparks and it arcs and it growls. It's a fitting throne for the king of the jungle. You know, Starbucks uh, prints quotes on the side of their coffee cups. Have you ever seen this when you've gone to Starbucks? Recently, they featured a quote from Joel Stein, who is a Los Angeles Times columnist. Stein writes this, Heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century. But heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. Hey, Joel Stein envisions a heaven that's boring and that's drab. Apparently, he's never read of the real heaven. For when I imagine heaven, I think of just the opposite of boring and drab. I think of Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross. You remember Jesus told him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That term paradise, that's a Persian term. It refers to a walled garden in the midst of a desert. I mean, rich sheiks, they would build a wall around their oasis. Outside the walls was nothing but sand and barrenness, but within the walls was lush vegetation and delicious fruit trees and shady palms and underground aquifers and springs that turned into fountains and pleasant little arbors and uh, bays of grass where people could sit and relax and converse with one another. It was perfect for fellowship. When Jesus talked about heaven, this is what he was referring to, a walled garden, an oasis in the midst of a desert, a beautiful garden. You know, for the most part, I think this world is a pretty gorgeous place. Drive through North Georgia over the next several weeks and you can watch the leaves turning color. You'll see beauty galore. This world has some spectacular sights. But God created this earth in just six days. You know, just before he ascended, Jesus said to his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. That means Jesus has been working on heaven for the last 2,000 years. Imagine if Jesus made this world's beauty in a mere six days. Think of what heaven will be like after 2,000 years of construction. I mean, heaven will be heavenly. God's crib, man, it boggles your brain. It certainly blows away the mythic notions that heaven is just a long chain of cumulus clouds or a maze of white, sterile hospital hallways and wax tile floors. To the contrary, heaven explodes with the light and the color and the sound of a big budget rock show. Heaven will blow away all the stereotypes. And notice, John doesn't just describe the appearance of God's throne. He's also impressed with the activity going on around the throne. There's perpetual motion in heaven. Heaven is eye-popping, but it's also feet-hopping. Heaven is a happening place. No one stands idly by in heaven. No one has his hands in his pockets in heaven. No one's twiddling his thumbs in heaven. No one is bored or confused about what they should be doing in heaven. No one says, duh, I don't know, in heaven. There are no does and dumb looks in heaven. All heaven is consumed with one activity. John reports it in verse 6. 
And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Here's a creature with its head on a swivel. I mean, it's constantly looking. It's always aware. It doesn't want to doze off for a second in case it misses something. It never takes a nap. Its eyes are always on the target. These eyes never shut. They never get distracted. You know, it's interesting to me that what has been all but forgotten by the vast majority of people on this earth, the throne of God, is all that these beings care to gaze at. They're fixated on the throne. They don't go to sleep for fear of missing something that comes from the throne. Not once do these creatures look up the latest Gallup tracking poll on the presidential election. Not once do they tune into Fox News for an update. Or check the scores on ESPN. Or see how their stocks did that day. Or check their Facebook feed. They don't even browse Pinterest. Not once do they do that. They are mesmerized by the glory of God alone. I mean, at the time of this vision, John is still an earthling. His feet are planted on terra firma. John still has earthly interests. But when he sees heaven, all that he now looks at and talks about is God and His throne. And when he returned from heaven to Patmos, I can promise you that he never saw life the same way again. You see, the jungle isn't as fearful or important or appealing or foreboding after you see the king and his throne. I don't know who will be president of the United States on November 7th, but I guarantee you Jesus will be ruling from his throne in heaven. And I'm going to trust him wholeheartedly. The creatures that John sees not only have eyes in the front and back, but they have faces. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These four faces represent attributes of God. Here's a four by four advertisement of the glory of God. For God in some ways is like a lion. His power and majesty. In other ways he's like a calf. His service and sacrifice. Still in other ways, he's like a man, his creativity and intellect. And God is like an eagle. His wings glide through the heavens, and he is sovereign over all things. Notice verse 8 continues. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now in the Bible, there are two types of angels mentioned. Cherubim and seraphim. Both warrior-type creatures. I mean, they're fearsome. Men see these angels and they melt like wax. In the Old Testament, a single angel killed 186,000 soldiers in one night. Now, Ezekiel, he saw cherubim with four faces, like in verse 7. Isaiah saw seraphim with six wings, like in verse 8. Apparently, John sees some kind of a hybrid. Maybe a cherubim or a cerebum, I don't know. <laughs> Evidently, these four living creatures were special op angels that guard the throne of God. Call them the secret service of the heavenly armed forces. That's what they were. And notice their movement. 
I mean, they're vigilance. They never stop. They're always on duty. Verse 8. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These angels praise God for His holiness. Three times they shout holy in deference to the triune God. And they acknowledge His timelessness, that God truly dwells outside of the time domain. That He is the God of the past. History is His story. That He is the God of the present. He is the great I Am. And He is the God of the future. The world is spiraling headlong to a climax that fits His purpose. He was and is and is to come all at the same time. Heaven is full of activity. And John notes that it's not all spontaneous. Rather, there's a synchronized response. Heaven is all a buzz, but it's an orderly buzz. John describes it in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. I mean, that's the cue. For at that very moment, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. I mean, the whole chapter now is leading up to verse 10. Here is the big idea in today's message. You want to write this down. The priority of heaven is the worship of God. I'll say it again. The priority of heaven is the worship of God. And notice worship is not passive. Notice these 24 elders, they fall down on their faces and they lift up their voices. Sadly, I've been to churches that were more like a morgue. I mean, here's an illustration that's kind of outdated, but I couldn't think of any better. Some Christians worship like Jed Clampett's dog. Do you remember Jed's dog? An old hound dog. They called him Old Blue. I know some of you don't remember this, but there's a picture of Old Blue right there. This dog looked like an empty sack. It rarely budged. It just sort of meandered back and forth between comatose and dead. In comatose, have you ever seen an energetic puppy? I mean, there's enthusiasm and expression and expectation and joy and participation and response as well as awe and respect. Doggone it. When we worship God, we need to act like puppies. That's how we need to respond to Him. Author Ron Allen writes, Worship is not passive but participative. It's not simply a mood, it's a response. Worship is not just a feeling, it's a declaration. Worship isn't a time of the week or a place that we meet or a program that the church follows. Worship is a verb. It's something we do. Worship is an action word. Bud Wilkerson, former football coach of the Oklahoma Sooners, he described college football as 55,000 fans desperately needing exercise, sitting in the stands watching 22 men on a field desperately needing rest. <laughs> well, sometimes our Sunday worship resembles what happens on Saturday. We come to watch, to be entertained by people who can sing and play. And we fail to realize that God wants our participation. He wants us to be involved in this worship. Understand what worship looks like in heaven, man. You should get used to it. 
if you plan to be there. I mean, these colossal, battle-hardened, angelic creatures, the type of creatures that if you met them in a dark alley, they'd strike fear in your heart. I mean, they're jettisoning back and forth, hovering like Black Hawk helicopters over the throne of God. They never rest. Then you got these distinguished elders over here, heroes of the faith. They fall down on their faces. They cast their crowns before the king. Grown men cry like women in labor as they utter God's greatness. I mean, worship in heaven, worship is heaven's most serious business. That's what it is. There's no such thing as a spectator mentality. Heaven is into it, man. There's nothing half-hearted about the effort. The biggest, baddest creatures aren't in the gym sharpening up their martial arts. They're into worship. They're before the throne, raising their hands and lifting their voices and giving back to God the glory due His name. They're responding to His greatness. I mean, when I come home at night, when I walk through the front door, here I am, the revelation of Sandy Adams. I've come back. And my wife just shrugs, sort of mumbles hello, dinner's on the stove. Then goes upstairs and leaves and disappears. If that happened, I'd be insulted. I'd be hurt. I'd be disappointed. I mean, that's certainly not the response that I'd like to receive. How about a hug? A kiss? How about both? At least a pleasant greeting. I mean, it's like the guy who said to his wife, Now, I told you that I loved you on our wedding day. And if anything changed, I'd let you know. Ladies, you want more out of your husband than that, don't you? I mean, you want daily affirmations of his love for you. And so does God. That's what we call worship. The elders, they fall on their face. And notice what they do next. They cast their crowns before the throne. You remember those crowns? They lay them down at Jesus' feet. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that All believers will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And our works will be tried. We're saved, but our motives will be screened. Did we serve the Lord to promote ourselves? Was pride or selfishness involved? Or did we do it for Jesus' sake? And crowns will be rewarded accordingly. Now I've heard some Christians say, Man, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to be glad that I'm there. I'm not worried about rewards. I mean, heaven is heavenly with or without a crown. And that, my friend, is a very short-sighted perspective. Worship is the reason that I work and serve the Lord. Hey, I am trying to rack up as many rewards as possible. Because I don't want to get caught with nothing to give to Jesus. For all of a sudden, you and I, we're going to see Jesus I mean, we're going to be there face to face with the king of the jungle. You'll you'll see the nail prints in his hands. You'll see the scars in his face and on his brow. And you will be instantly overwhelmed with all that Jesus has done for you. It'll reduce you to tears. I mean, you'll be lying there before him, nothing but a pile of melted gratitude. And then out of the corner of your eye, you'll see them. You'll see those elders over there casting their crowns at Jesus' feet. And you'll think, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll show him my gratitude and my love. I'll give him my crowns. 
What if you don't have any crowns? What a sad, empty feeling that'll be to finally be in a position to give back to Jesus a little of the grace and love he's shown you. And you have, you come up empty. You got nothing to give him. I can't imagine a more humiliating, embarrassing, shameful spot to be in. You got no tangible way to say thanks. I don't want to be in that boat. Hope you don't either. One year for Christmas, my brother and I, we agreed not to exchange gifts. I mean, we usually buy each other piddly little junk anyway. I mean, so why not just save the money? We thought we were being practical. Well, apparently his wife didn't get the message. And so on Christmas Day, she hands me a present. And I have nothing with which to reciprocate. And so I feel like a heel. And it really made me mad because Ken was the one that should have felt like a heel, not me. (laughs) But if I felt that way before my kid brother, imagine how you'll feel before Jesus, man. Never forget, even our work and service will ultimately be turned back into worship. Verse 11, the 24 elders, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. He is worthy. It reminds me of the millionaire who was explaining his success to the crowd. He says, When I came to this town, all I had was a nickel to my name. But I used that nickel to buy an apple. I polished it for hours. And the next day, I sold that apple for a dime. Then I bought two apples. Polished them until they were sparkling. Sold them for 20 cents. On and on this went, day after day, until I had accumulated $3.20. One of his admirers shouted out, Wow, that's so inspiring. You're a self-made man. Tell us, tell us, what happened next? The rich man replied, Well, the next day my father-in-law died and left me $20 million. (laughs) So much for self-made. And this is the realization that should dawn on all of us. None of us are self-made people. We are all trophies of God's grace. Pardon and peace, forgiveness and freedom. Even the material blessings that we've gained didn't come because we deserve them. God authors our gifts and our opportunities. He always has and He always will. He should receive all glory and honor And power, not us. And then the elders cry again. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And I love the old King James Version here. It says, thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You and I were created for God's pleasure, not our own. You were created for heaven. And you were created for God's pleasure. And until you accept why you're here, how will you ever determine which way you should go? God is trying to call us back to that for which He created us. To worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. Hey, the elders in heaven tell us that we were created for God's pleasure. And you need to listen to your elders. Years ago, there was a company that ran a magazine ad picturing this groggy fellow. He's waking up in the morning. He's crawling out of bed. And the caption reads, Is it an alarm or a calling 
that gets you out of bed in the morning? That's a good question for us. God has a calling for each of us. He's created us for His plans and His purposes. This means we find our deepest fulfillment. We find our highest happiness, not when we reach our goals or make our fortune or achieve our ambition, but when we live for the pleasure of God and bring Him glory. Once I saw a headline in the lifestyle section of the newspaper, it read, I play, therefore I am. The article caught my attention. It declared, life is all about leisure. But the headline was really only one letter off. You need to substitute an R for the L. It should read, I pray, therefore I am. For the real reason you exist is fellowship with God. It's to bring Him pleasure. It's to bring honor to His name. You've seen the t-shirts, life is soccer or life is baseball. Well, neither are true. Life is worship. I heard a fanciful tale of a scientist who had bred a fish that could live outside the water. Well, this scientist, though, wasn't satisfied with his remarkable accomplishment. He figured that this fish still had some secret desire for H2O. And so he conditioned it to abhor the very sight of water. High humidity was this fish's worst nightmare. Until one day, the fish was accidentally dropped into the lake. It drew in a tentative gillful. Its eyes bulged. It breathed again and flicked a fin. It breathed a third time and wiggled with glee and finally it darted away. The fish had discovered water. And as that fish was made for water, so is man made for the presence of God. And yet people in this world are bred and conditioned to live without God. How tragic. For until we come to Jesus, we never really discover the reason for which we were created. Heaven proves our lives never make more sense than when we worship. Well, John's vision of God's crib provides us a spectacular view of sight seen by only a few mortal men. But its primary purpose is not so much to spotlight the scenery of heaven as it is to shed light on the priority of heaven. And heaven's priority is worship. May worship be the priority of our lives and our church.